open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Podcast. We've got a great interview today with Krista Rose from Counterparty. Uh, but before we get to that, we had a couple questions submitted by Jeff and Hayden. So I'd like to answer those questions first. Hi, we are Grade 607 Inquiry Group, and we really appreciate it if you could answer some questions for us. Thank you. Why do you like Bitcoin? Should people use Bitcoin? Why or why not? How do we stop people from buying black market stuff such as drugs and guns with Bitcoin? Should Bitcoin stay anonymous? Do you think Bitcoin will last into the future? Thank you for the feedback. It will help us so much. Hi, Jeff and Hayden. I'd like to thank you for submitting the question. It's uh, it's great to have such well-thought-out questions to answer. So I like Bitcoin for a lot of reasons. One, it's a completely innovative and new technology. Two, it's uh, censorship-resistant. Three, it's immutably persistent. That means that you can't change it Like after the database has been updated, after the ledgers uh, had a transaction confirmed into a block. These are all very important reasons why uh, people should use Bitcoin. I really think it depends on the use case. You know, currency is a very easy application, but not necessarily even the best one for it. Uh, there are a lot of other applications and uses, so it really depends on why people want to use it. Uh, I think it has tremendous potential for uh, reshaping how a lot of our capital and financial and monetary markets work throughout the world. Uh, people shouldn't use it if they... Uh, don't feel comfortable like learning new tech, aren't willing to take a little bit of risk, uh, things like that. When it comes to uh, stopping people buying black market stuff like drugs or guns with Bitcoin, uh, I think it's important to remember that you know in Western societies we value freedom of speech. Uh, that means we don't have prior restraints on speech, uh, political speech, anonymous speech, uh, whistleblowing, uh, cryptography, all of these things have been upheld by the United States Supreme Court under freedom of speech. And Bitcoin's just the next uh, kind of innovation in that area. It makes speech that you can't erase. Uh, that's a big, big deal. And, you know, how people use it? Well, you know, I actually attended uh, about half of all the days of trial for Ross Albrecht with Silk Road. I attended his sentencing, which lasted about four hours, and he got sentenced to two life terms in prison. Just because people use Bitcoin uh, for black market activities, thinking that it's anonymous, uh, they can be sadly mistaken. And I think that law enforcement uh, is very competent, very able to do their job. Uh, Bitcoin is not completely anonymous in that regard, as we found out in the Silk Road case. And uh, the bad actor is going to jail for a long, long time. So I think that law enforcement has a lot of the tools that they need in order to do their job. 
So sure, we're going to have this tension between civil rights, civil liberties, living in a free and open society, being able to talk and discuss ideas in the public square uh, with people who uh, engage in bad behavior that most people find unacceptable. And at the end of the day, like law enforcement's got a lot of resources, a lot of tools at their disposal. Uh, Ross Albrecht thought that he was uh, operating and wouldn't get caught, and yet he got caught, and he's in jail in life without parole. Uh, and you know that part of the judge's reasoning for the sentencing was to be a warning to other people who might think of engaging in this type of behavior. And so, you know, and, and I actually want to discuss this whole Soap Road thing a little bit later, uh, but, you know, Ross Albrecht, we have to honor his agency and his choice. And he chose to engage in behavior that could carry a life sentence uh, when he could have engaged in any type of behavior. And so, ironically, uh, he's... A, perhaps the biggest junkie of them all in the Silk Road case, and he's paying uh, the consequences of that. And if those consequences were to be obviated, uh, then we wouldn't be respecting his choice when he decided to engage in that behavior. Will Bitcoin last in the future? Uh, oh yeah, definitely. It's going to be around for a long, long time, and it's going to play a big role in a lot of the things that happen in money, currency, computer networking, uh, corporate governance, all this stuff, accounting. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, anyways, thanks for your question, and on to the interview with Krista Rose. Well, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a very interesting interview today with Krista Rose. He's the community director for the Counterparty Project. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so, you know, just start off, how'd you kind of get involved in Bitcoin, and what is this counterparty project that you're uh, being the community organizer, right? <laughs> yes, community director. If such things are possible in Bitcoin. Yeah, so Bitcoin I was following, uh, I think in late 2010s when I first saw it, and I didn't believe any of it at all. And I thought it was nonsense, and I was trying to kind of uh, find holes in the whole protocol, and I was unable to do so. And then around 2011, I finally started to actually become a regional evangelist of sorts in my South Florida community. It was very minor at first, and over the years, uh, it just started to grow. I didn't really start taking it as seriously in terms of like my full-time priority uh, until really 2013. But around then, we started doing a uh, meetup group in South Florida. That's the South Florida Meetup Group, and we now meet every single week. For anybody in the audience who lives in South Florida, uh, certainly come on out if you haven't already. We meet in Boca Raton, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and we switch through those three locales on a weekly basis. And as I was doing Bitcoin, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's popped in and out of the Bitcoin space. Uh, if you've been doing it for a while, certainly you remember uh, seeing Litecoin for the first time and then wondering, like, is Bitcoin really the only protocol that there's room for in this space? And then we've seen things like Ethereum and BitShares. And um, I think what attracted me to Counterparty is that it is Bitcoin in every sense that was important to me. Uh, you use a Bitcoin address, you uh, exchange over the Bitcoin network. And I think it really fits into what Jeff talks about, where he envisions Bitcoin as a uh, IP layer of value transfer on the internet, and there are protocols on top of that IP layer that we can build. And so I think Counterparty fulfills that goal, which is something that I really want to see. Now, I mean, this is really another layer of abstraction, right? So, I mean, what what do you mean, like, 
another IP layer or another protocol layer on top of Bitcoin? Like, what are we what are we doing with this? Right. Why does it matter? Right. So IP is maybe not the best analogy, but it works pretty well. IP is just a, a protocol for transferring information between two addresses. It doesn't do name registration, which is what DNS does. It doesn't even guarantee delivery, which is what TCP does. Um, nor does it serve uh, state in the terms of uh, web pages, as you see with HTTP. These are all additional services that were built onto the very basic level that is IP. Now, if you translate that into the Bitcoin space, um, we can say, well, what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin doesn't do names. It just does numbers. And Bitcoin uh, doesn't do a lot of things, but transfer value between two parties. and that's a lot. It's by no means a, a, a small task that it has achieved. But there's problems, I think, if we want to scale. And uh, some of those problems include yeah, maybe names. The counterparty does that to a degree. But uh, more specifically, uh, tokenized value representations. So you look at things um, like stock certificates. So you, you wouldn't necessarily have a functioning stock market if we always transmitted uh, some investment uh, between each other in dollar terms, we, we need to abstract value, um, and so we buy shares in Microsoft, and now we have a bearer certificate that's a Microsoft share. Well, with Counterparty, you can do that. You can create shares in your company. Uh, those shares and that value transmit over the Bitcoin network. You use your Bitcoin address, and um, Bitcoin is merely the value transfer mechanism. Counterparty lets you decouple a token from the value of Bitcoin, yet it exists over the Bitcoin network for uh, all the other reasons we use Bitcoin, identity, security, on and on. And I, I think that some of the things we talk about in the Counterparty Project is how to build from there. So smart contracts we have in testnet. Uh, for anybody who's a fan of Serpent, the Ethereum uh, proposed standard, that is what we use. And it is very functional. It will be switched on very soon. Uh, so we can do things like that in addition to the, the base levels of Bitcoin. It's all of the additional programmatic features um, that are involved in smart contracts, these sort of conditional deliveries of assets and value uh, in, in this tokenized space. This is traditionally what's considered Bitcoin 2.0 projects, you know, extending the functionality of the core protocol by abstracting on top of it. And when we do have these assets abstracted on top of it, we're able to have atomic transactions that take place with these assets? Correct. Could you perhaps describe like the process, how that works exactly? Right. So we use the consensus mechanism of Bitcoin, which was very important to me. You know, I, I try to study blockchains as best I can, but the fact remains that the Bitcoin blockchain is the most powerful and the most successful by a lot. So we use the Bitcoin consensus network, we use the mining consensus algorithm to uh, perform all validations for us, and we run what's called federation servers on top of that. So we encode into Bitcoin transactions the scarce data and the um, financially sensitive information. That gets inserted into the network. We know that that was transmitted by the parties involved. The counterparty network does some validation on top of that to do basic security checking on the encoding and such. Um, but it leverages all of the existing infrastructure for Bitcoin for this purpose. And there's a lot of subtleties to it. It is a little bit complicated, but um, that's the, the overview of, of how that works. Where does it get encoded? Uh, I mean, is this in the scripting language, like the op return? I mean, like, where does it get encoded in an actual transaction? And are there risks to, like, where it gets encoded? Could it be pruned, for example? Right. So we're using op multisig now. And for any miners that are listening to this, uh, we don't want to use op multisig. Uh, we want to use op return. We've written all the code for op return. And the only reason we don't use it by default is because some miners don't seem to want to process it. So, you know, counterparty is a little controversial for, um, I think, 
certainly adding more value to the Bitcoin network than it was asking for. Uh, you know, if you're running a currency with a market cap of $5 billion and then you put another $5 billion of asset weight on that network, now you have a $10 billion network and, and Bitcoiners didn't necessarily ask for that. So we get criticism for that and I can get into that and my attitudes on it, but, but there's some risk involved there. And we use check multisig, not because we want to be abusing the system, but because I think that it's fairly obvious now that we have all of these protocols and even the core devs, I think, agree with us that we can be putting this metadata into the transaction. We'd like to use op return because that lets us, A, signal intent. It tells the network where uh, this data sort of fits in the scheme of things. And it also gives the miners more discretion in terms of what type of data maybe that they want to be processing and certainly the ability that they can prune if we put it in op return, it's a lot easier to compress down the line. People can remove that data if they don't want it from their repository. What about other projects like sidechains, for example? How does Counterparty interact with or compare to uh, this proposed uh, sidechains by uh, Dr. Adam Back? Yeah, so sidechains is certainly something that we'd be open to and would like to use. And it may be that this is just a stepping stone for that implementation. We don't have the option of using sidechains now. So we can't really work with that uh, at the moment, but we've been following it, and it, it's certainly something that's on our radar. As we have options there, it's entirely likely that we'll begin pursuing them. We want guidance, and we want clarity from the miners, and we want it from the devs. And it seems like people do like this direction on average, and the support infrastructure is still getting fleshed out. So as it gets fleshed out, we will use that. You know, kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, you recently had an article in the, the largest, the oldest uh, financial trade magazine, American Banker. The title was The Rise of the Blockchain. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a summary on that and perhaps where you're going with the additional articles that are going to be in that series? Yeah, you know, I, I see a lot of coverage on Bitcoin and I think about Bitcoin a lot. I've been writing for Bitcoin Magazine. Um, I did some writing for Cointelegraph and some other smaller articles uh, elsewhere. Um, I, I think I targeted American Banker for all the reasons that you brought them up. I, I think they're a very traditional news source, and, and they really embrace Bitcoin in, I think, a meaningful way. I wanted to set the record straight in, in ways that I don't think it's uh, being set straight. In particular, we have a lot of people trying to redefine this word blockchain lately. Uh, it's a little infuriating to me. I, I don't know if the audience agrees, but I've heard claims that the blockchain was invented in the 80s, um, that the blockchain can run without a uh, token of value. These are things that maybe they are controversial, but I don't think so. As somebody who's been following Bitcoin for a while now, um, I think these attempts to redefine blockchains are, are silly, and I think that they're distracting in particular to that community. I think you have people that are not very technically inclined, and now they're getting these conflicting messages. And so I felt like, you know what, I, I think there's some very common sense guidelines we can give uh, you know, to the effect of what does a blockchain accomplish, how does a blockchain work, which will be the next in the series. And um, what are the competitors doing will be the, probably the series uh, entry after that. Hitting on competitors, what about like this uh, company, this really small company called Ripple Labs? I mean, are they dealing with blockchains or how do you think they fit in this overall scheme? Yeah, scheme might be the operative word there. I, you know, I don't want to allege that they're in any way like scandalous, but it, the scheme, as far as I could tell, was to throw around the word blockchain and market a company um, to a group of people who maybe wanted to buy a buzzword. I, I can't quite figure out that end of things. But I think that by their own admission, they're not a blockchain at this point. And it's a very centrally orchestrated system. I, they have an open source repository, and I think that they brandied out that repository as being decentralized and that you can run your own validators and that somehow that makes it decentralized. and. 
Um, I think that that's not a very accurate statement. Um, you know, for me, there's a couple of ways to understand blockchains, but the most important one, I think, is that a blockchain provides immutable persistence, which for any programmer would probably make immediate sense. But we've never had immutable persistence. We've never had uh, this notion of a value that can't change. Uh, we've always had values that can't change because a central party says that they can't change. So maybe that, that party is Google or MySQL. But we've never had in the sort of greater sense of the natural world a way of asserting a truth that just stays there. And then you look at something like Ripple and they defy that basic premise, like it quite specifically added moderation. And I think that that violates one of the core objectives that a blockchain sets out to achieve. Um, and then from there, it gets weird. Like I don't know why you need to trust people and have tokens. It seems like one or the other would work, but they've chosen both. Um, and so I, I don't know that they, as a competing blockchain, is even necessarily an accurate statement. They may be a very good company. Like I don't doubt that there's room for a lot of efficiency that, that they're going to provide. Um, I think I slightly resent their use of the word blockchain, and I think that's part of the article series, is to examine like what is a blockchain and when is it useful. You know, I think it's very interesting. You talked about this immutable persistence, and you know, one of the things I really find fascinating about Bitcoin is that in terms of information theory, we're able to create a fact, something that can't be uh, destroyed, which... Uh, becomes very helpful. It can be applied in so many different ways. Hopefully, I'll be able to interview the Factum guys pretty soon. Uh, but you know, back to uh, chewing on the the Ripple bone. From what I understand, Ripple's actually reset the Ripple ledger, like completely just wiped it clean, which they can do at any time by their own choice. What effect could that have on a company like yourself? You know, if you wanted to build or innovate on top of something that could just be wiped away. You know, the database yeah. just reset whenever uh, somebody arbitrarily feels like it. Well, I think that it offers an efficiency over some of the existing centralized solutions, if I had to guess, where moderation is the norm. And maybe what they're offering is a little bit more of uh, a public auditing capacity or something like that. So at least you know when the value is reset. Like maybe that's their value proposition, maybe. But in terms of writing a decentralized application, there's no reduction of counterparty risk whatsoever. So like why use Ripple when you could just use a hosted uh, MySQL database on Amazon or something? Um, it'll be faster, it'll be easier, and, and on and on. Um, I think that the repercussions that they'll have in the community amongst developers uh, is that there's no trust, uh, nor should there be, because they've, they've demonstrated that they can and they will modify whatever the, the truths are that you try to assert with them, as it is you know, financially or politically uh, needed. You know, so say you're, you're chief technology officer at Morgan Stanley or, or J.P. Morgan Chase. You get these clowns coming in like every week. All of them, we're going to change the world. We, we do Bitcoin stuff. We do cryptocurrency stuff or we do blockchain stuff. How do you sift through the noise and hone in on the signal of what's actually important in this area? Like what, what would be the advice that you would yeah. give to someone like that so that they aren't wasting their time and attention with clowns. A track record. You're absolutely right. So everybody comes into the Bitcoin space and they announce their paper and this will change the world. And then a year later, it's hard forked or it's forgotten or whatever whatever it is. Um, there's just this strange hype cycle. Uh, as, as There's this suspension of disbelief amongst everyone. Like this blockchain was created so that all the rules are off and now anybody can come in with a white paper and change the rules again. Um, but the historic moment that we had with Bitcoin is probably not going to be repeated often. And so I, my apprehension at this point is for anything that's new, uh, I'll read and I'll, I'll consider things, but it takes a good year or so before I really have uh, a solid opinion of a project. 
Um, and that was true for Counterparty. I think I really didn't get super involved until like November or December. I've only been out for about a year. But um, off the bat, you don't get to just announce success before you've done anything. So that would be one guideline. But another guideline too is, I mean, look at look at the numbers. Bitcoin has done so well. Uh, it's done well for so many years and it's done well in almost every metric. Transaction volume, hashing power, VC funding, on and on. Um, so when somebody comes, they, they don't have the network effect, they don't have any of these these metrics to choose from, and they should probably be treated with a, with a degree of um, reservation that that would entail. Um, I think mostly people are just so bananas because they've been shown that the impossible was true that they consider that anything impossible is true. And then that's where you go down the path of, of insanity, it seems, because we've all seen that in this space. Kind of like a barracuda, just anything flashy, like you just yeah. start swimming after it, right? It's true. Um, yeah, it gives a whole new meaning to uh, proof of work. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I had a law professor and she'd ask questions and you'd have to answer and she'd be like, that's a nice answer, but cite me a case. <laughs> yeah. It's like, show me the code. Yeah. Like, like opinion, white paper, like all this stuff's nice. Show me the code. And, you know, when you've been working and tinkering on things for several years, when you've had the world at large, like just banging on your stuff for six years. I mean, the shadiest people in the world, right? Have mm -hmm. been like trying to break Bitcoin. Yeah. It's still here. Hasn't been broken. Yep. What else has a, a track record like that that has just been absolutely ground up as much as possible and yet comes out pristine? Yeah. You know, the code is very elegant with Bitcoin. The proof of work is there. We got how many hundreds of thousands of blocks in the blockchain? Yep. If you're going to try something else, is it just the next shiny thing or is it something that's actually had significant amount of human and intellectual power allocated to it and researched behind it and tested and banged on and all that stuff. I think too that Bitcoin itself, you should consider, like we take it as a given that Bitcoin works and, and I certainly believe that, but every time there's a block, it remains to be seen if the next block will be forged. Like we have reason to believe it, but it's it's a running hypothesis. It's not still not quite a fact. Like it has to prove itself every time. And um, I mean, and this will even gets into the immutability aspect. Like it's it's been immutable for the six years or so. Like so far, it's been immutable, and it's amazing and it's wonderful. But then you take a look at there's still a lot of risks in there, and then these investors sometimes want to go on and compound that risk with like yet more risk because the risk in Bitcoin isn't enough. But some of it's greed, I think. You know, like it's it's a sort of a, a chance to sort of become and reset you know your your investment strategy and I don't know um, succeed in, in these, these gigantic ways. But yeah, yeah, all all, all of that is. Part of the Bitcoin space, I guess. It's it's, it's science too. It's how science works. You gotta you gotta pound on stuff. <laughs> testing hypothesis, yeah. uh, you know, testing again, reformatting, refiguring your hypothesis, testing again. I mean, that's how we engineer. You know, I had uh, someone on the podcast a few years ago, and we were discussing this about how our early attempts, things like DigiCash and eGold and uh, gold money, how those, those were like early attempts of the, the horseless carriage. And, you know, after a hundred years, like an automobile today, and even an automobile in another 20, 30 years is going to be completely different. And you can't even compare it to an automobile when they first came out. Yeah, of course. Uh, we've just had so many advancements, you know, pretty soon we're going to have driverless cars and perhaps we're going to have uh, solar roadways and like all types of things that are just like, it's just going to be a completely different way of the whole transportation industry. And so likewise, our financial industry is going to have a lot of change because of this fundamental scientific and technological breakthrough of creating 
a blockchain of solving that distributed consensus uh, Byzantine generals problem. So, you know, just to kind of end the interview, what are you most optimistic about in the space? Well, my own project certainly is what I'm, I'm most optimistic about, and that's why I joined it. But outside of Counterparty itself, you know, I, I, I think people don't always like to hear this, but I, I think I think we need more support from the traditional banks. I think we need more support from traditional financiers uh, and investment professionals. Um, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the American Banker series is because I felt we needed that. But um, what I'm optimistic about and what I see is that they're they're coming. They're taking this seriously. Uh, I, I see that happening more and more. Um, I think a lot of people in the movement are going to lament the growing up of Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, I think that on the whole it will be good. And I think, too, that a lot of the core principles that the anarchists were fighting for will be achieved. But I don't think it'll happen soon. And I don't think it'll happen in the way that they envisioned. So I, I'm, I'm still not divorced myself even from a lot of those ideals. You know, I, I like to talk about the fiat coup, uh, you know, this, the, the coin, they coined this term, the best I can tell. I, what I foresee happening over time is what we'll probably see a lot of value transfers go over Bitcoin. It'll happen incrementally and it'll happen in weird and strange ways. We'll be purchasing stocks perhaps over Bitcoin. We'll be doing point of sale purchases over Bitcoin. Uh, but we may not know that we're using Bitcoin. Like I, I foresee us spending dollars for all intents and purposes over a, a Bitcoin link, either through the counterparty system or, or something else. And then what will happen at some point, I think, is that people start looking around and realizing that they, they were kind of using the training wheels of Bitcoin. That, wait a second, we, we've all of a sudden, every single transaction now is denominated, it's, it's backed in Bitcoin in, in this sort of indirect way. And I don't know if that'll happen like at a sudden time and then we'll realize like, oh my God, the, the fiat coup has happened. We, we did it. Or if just over some time, other countries and it just becomes sort of a deferential thing that Bitcoin is like gold maybe and, and that we use these other tokens uh, because they're inferior to Bitcoin. And, and so we start to displace more uh, traditional regulational options in that way. I'm not really sure, but uh, I do think that the professionals coming are probably very important and not incompatible with many of our goals from, from those of us who've been in this from the start. So there we have it. The more things change, the more things stay the same, huh? Yeah, it seems so. Thanks for uh, for the enlightening interview on these blockchain 2.0 uh, applications. We've had Chris DeRose, Community uh, Director for the Counterparty Project. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.